Maybe Ensign Batehart, who is a fine pilot. There are electromagnetic anomalies in the atmosphere, and I would rather have you with the helm. Am I discerning a personal problem here, gentlemen? Frankly, yes, Captain. Solve it. You leave it 1,400 hours. Welcome back to Delta Flyer. I'm Stuart Hollis. And I'm Thad Haight. This week we're talking about Season 2, Episode 7, Parturition. Yes, we are. Which reminds me, nothing. I meant to look up parter- the word parturition and then I didn't. You weren't going to say that we're going to hatch our conversation? Oh, parturition means birth. That makes sense. Yeah, so we're going we're gonna to hatch our conversation about this episode. Yeah, we gave birth to this podcast. Gross. It originally aired October 9th, 1995, and our synopsis from TV Guide... Following a fight over Kess, Neelix and Paris crash land on an an inhospitable planet where they become foster parents to an alien hatchling. Memory Alpha has an incredibly vague and mostly useless synopsis. A trip to planet hell proves therapeutic for Tom, Paris, and Neelix. Uh, Hmm. That is pretty short and relatively vague. Yeah. Hmm. So this episode is the second of three Voyager episodes directed by Jonathan Frakes. The first being Projections, and the third will be Prototype. Uh, it was the it's credited as being written solely by Tom Zalozzi or Zalozzi, uh, and he he also wrote The Cloud. Although there's an uh, there was an uncredited rewrite of this episode by Michael Piller. Okay, huh? Which one was The Cloud? Um, there were so many different things they encountered in season one. I don't like you. Uh, well, no, I mean like space things. Oh, so it's from season one? Yeah. The cloud is the coffee in that nebula. Ah! Alright, so our our episode opens with Kess and Paris on a, on a shuttle. Yes. And even before they said it was a simulation... I knew it was a simulation because Paris was, like, way more calm Yes, than he had any right to be if they actually were having problems like that. So I have a question about this simulation and continuity. Or I, I also have a question about this simulation, but lead with yours. Uh, a question is wrong. A concern. I do not feel that Voyager's shuttlecraft simulation would be, have been likely to include Jem'Hadar ships. Okay, what's our timeline? Our timeline is Voyager got lost in the Delta Quadrant less than a year after we first meet the Jem'Hadar. Okay, but, like, the second to last thing they did before getting lost in the Delta Quadrant was stop at Deep Space Nine. Do you really think they stopped there to, like, pick up holographic training videos? Probably not just to pick up holographic training videos, but they're docked with Deep Space Nine, and while they're there, they touch base with Starfleet Command, and they're like, download us the latest whatevers. Mm. Including, not yet released, phaser schematics. (laughs) Yeah. Alright, yeah. This is less ridiculous than the phasers, I'll give you that. But it still seems improbable. Okay, I can get behind you on that. So my thing... Mm -hmm. I get that they have holodecks. So, like, once you have that, a lot of other things become, like, unnecessary. Yeah. 
But from my perspective, I kind of feel like they could have literally like taken an actual legit shuttlecraft out and just like just like flown in circles around Voyager and had the computer display whatever they needed it to display. Yes, they definitely could have. Like like, like I feel like the shuttle should have also had some sort of like simulation software on board. But I mean, I suppose like with the holodeck they can also like really feel like they're trapped in an anomaly and not just have the computer tell them that they are, but if energy is a finite resource on board the ship like vegetables, then perhaps we shouldn't burn energy training well, wouldn't the shuttle use energy to do its thing? I suppose, but they have so many shuttles, we think. <laughs> I hope they do. They lose one this episode. Yeah, and they you know, they lost one two episodes ago with Harry Kim when he fell asleep at the con. Yeah. This is actually the first shuttle crash that we see on Voyager. Right, because I guess in... Um, yeah, that we see on Voyager. In Maneuvers, it was destroyed, and in uh, Non Sequitur, it was also destroyed in, in space. It did not crash. I guess crash landing, I guess, is... This is the first time the shuttle crashes on a shuttle crashes on a planet on Voyager. Well, I was thinking of initiations. That's what I meant to say, initiations. We haven't seen Maneuvers yet. Right, but I guess in initiations, they beamed off of the shuttle yep. before it crashed. Yeah, and it was destroyed in... It was destroyed by... It was destroyed in space. It wasn't really crashed. It was, like... Anyway. Yeah. And the crash, skipping ahead a little bit, why don't they have seatbelts? I have always wondered this. God, like... The Kelvin... The Kelvin-verse, they have seatbelts. They do. There's a deleted scene from Star Trek Nemesis where... Picard is trying out his new captain's chair at the end of the movie, and it has a seatbelt. Wow. Only took him, like, 150 years. Right. And you'll notice in that Kelvinverse episode... Episode? Movie. You know what I mean. Uh, in that <laughs> Kelvinverse movie, those seatbelts were on an old ship. They weren't on the Enterprise. So... And that was actually a prime timeline ship, no less. Yeah. So, our friend and recent guest star Steve mm -hmm. sat with me to watch this episode and we were talking about this a little bit while it was happening and he was pretty sure and I I agree with him that they had seatbelts in the first Kelvin Trek like at some point I don't remember them I remember I'm pretty them sure on they the did. Franklin I definitely remember them on the Franklin because they had like the weird like pop out animation or whatever yeah. which was weird I don't remember seatbelts in the 2009 film. I thought they were there, but I'm not going to rewatch the whole movie just for that. Although I really do like that movie. I mean, not just for that, but sure, rewatch the movie. It's sure. Great. Yeah. Okay, so getting getting back to this episode, mm -hmm. and back to the beginning of this episode. Yep. We're in Janeway's ready room, and I'll get back to her ready room in a second. And she and Chakotay are talking, and he's bringing her some bad news that they are almost out of fruits and vegetables. It's a vegetable. But they've discovered an M-class planet that they think might have what they need. And they've called it Planet Hell. That is a joke. An inside joke. Go on. So, there, is a, there was a stage at Paramount uh, that was nicknamed by the cast and crew Planet Hell. That most of the, like planet of the week scenes were shot in uh, especially when they were on a planet that was dark and cloudy so they could hide the fact that they were on a soundstage like on like planet hell in this sure thing. and 
it was nicknamed Planet Hell because it was so hot and incredibly uncomfortable to act on that stage. Huh. Okay. Thank you, Memory Alpha. I actually knew that already. Okay. Thank you, Thad. <laughs> I mean, I did look it up again on Memory Alpha to be sure I had everything right, but yes. And I was glad that later in the episode... So once they get down there and Neelix is belly aching all the time forever, mm-hmm. and he's saying, I don't know why the ship sensors said that this planet had lots of fruits and veg- fruits and vegetables. Like, and But then like later in the episode, we have Paris coming back and saying, well, the sensors detected signs that usually point towards... Maybe they should have sent one of those class four probes down. Maybe they should have done really anything. And what the hell, built Bellana? You're like, hey, let's just take the whole ship in there. Yeah, there was that, too. That seemed a little risky. What's Bellana doing on the bridge, anyway? There's an engineering station on the bridge. She can monitor from there. Okay. She's not the only one who can monitor things that are happening on the bridge. That's true. Apparently. I am a doctor, not a voyeur. That's right. And a definite plus one on trigemic vapors. Yes, I have trigemic vapors mentioned as well here. That is de- that one is not seen again. What about Garnasite? Did you look that up? I did not look that up. I would like the only note I have about Garnasite is like, oh sweet, hot rocks. <laughs> and then we had a whole bunch of alien adjective, earth noun, things as well. Yeah, Steve and I counted like six. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It may have been seven. Uh, it was a lot. Yeah, it was quite a few this episode. Garnasite is also a plus one. Ah, nice. So, plus two for the episode. Sweet. Uh, One and done, I mean. Gotcha. Uh, Also in this episode, we have Harry Kim on his clarinet. Yes, we do. Yeah. Yeah. So... He he wants to get to Carnegie Hall. Yeah. Uh, I thought he was... Yeah, I I like the... It gives us a little human side to Clary... To Clary... To... Harry there, uh, and we have Tom come in and confess to Harry that he's has feelings for Kess. More than feelings, he says he loves her. Yeah. So, Robert Duncan McNeil does not ship Tom and Kess. Not even a little bit. I mean, quite frankly, I ship Tom and everyone on board. Since it, since he just forged with everybody, I mean, like I'll I'll ship Tom and Kess, Tom and Chakotay, Tom I and guarantee there's Paris Chakotay slash fiction, like you know guarantee Tom and Ensign. Uh, oh, who was that person they kept like mentioning who was like the secondary pilot? Oh, oh no, I have that's one of my notes. Ensign Ensign Baytart. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tom and Ensign Baytart. I I wanted to mention Ensign Baytart because just. Two weeks ago, we talked about surely there's someone else who is a pilot. And there we go. We have Ensign Baytart. Well, I mean, they're just a pilot. We don't know if they're actually, like, on the navig- on the, uh, like, the helm staff? I Ooh, imagine they are. Team? Because <laughs> Tom's an apartment head. He presumably has people who report to him. I mean, I would hope so. And it, we come back again to Harry Kim being an Ensign and a department head, but we've talked about that already. Uh, yeah. And speaking of Harry Kim, dropping his incredibly weak Chinese expression, which also felt like a weird thing for him to say since Kim is a Korean name. Yes. But it was also like a really weak expression. I don't remember what it was. It was like... It was dumb. I didn't write it down. Yeah. It was dumb. Like there's an old Chinese expression. 
things happen or something like it was yeah <laughs> come on harry you're supposed to be tom's best friend so michael pillar uh had a lot of influence in the creation of this episode and rewrote the script at the end. Uh, he wanted this episode to end, to deal with and end the Neelix jealousy plot because he thought it was getting very annoying. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. I, oh boy, did that. Okay, I guess I'm glad that it was dealt with and is over, but oh boy, was it's it's you know heavy focus in this episode rough, especially when he. The food fight. What was the food fight? It was a really weak food fight. Like, come on. Yeah, but what was that? Like, who acts that way? Neelix. Yeah, apparently. Because Paris had, in fact, not done anything wrong. And I feel sort of weird saying that. But he hadn't. Yeah. I mean, like, I had made a note that when when Cass and Neelix are having dinner, my two notes were one, those candlesticks were funky, <laughs> and two, that Neelix wasn't like a raging jealousy monster during the dinner with Cass, and he like managed to keep a lid on it until Cass walked out of the out of the mess hall later, and then he like straight up assaults Paris, and it's like, oh well, there it is, there's the monster. So, did you think? Did you think that Neelix was, like, in physical pain? Because it kind of seemed that way. It seemed like he was hiding a, an injury from Kess. Like, when he got up and he... It, it almost seemed like... It, it felt like he had and appendicitis and was trying to, like, hide it or something. Oh, during their dinner? Yeah. I felt like he was, like, trying to... Because in one... In an earlier episode... um, I guess it was... I can't remember which one it was now. Um, it was two or three episodes ago. Twisted? Where he was... It may have been Twisted. Where it was, you know, like, oh, you've seen the last of that... Yeah, that was... Jealous beat. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so, like, maybe it was him, like, trying to, like, actively not be a terrible person. The fact that it, like, happened when he stood up and had his back to cast... And the, the, the expression... The fact that he, he, like, clutched his side, too. It felt very much like he was in physical pain. I didn't notice the the side clutching. But apparently that was just him suppressing his jealousy, which is weird. Yeah. Uh, speaking of another throwback, throwback to Twisted. Mm-hmm. So, uh, partway through, uh, maybe like midway, three-quarters of the way through the episode, um, Janeway is saying we need to get around this alien ship. Mr. Tuvok, what do you, like, what ingenious plan do you have for us? And Chakotay just steps all over the ingenious plan and steals Tuvok's thunder. And I feel like this episode would make more sense. Like, that part of the episode would make more sense coming before Twisted. Mm. Yes. Where we have, like, Chakotay and Tuvok talking about their differences. And it's like, yeah, let's put our differences away now. Since up until Twisted, we hadn't really seen a whole lot of those two butting heads. So which two characters are going to put their differences aside next week? Uh, I think Harry Kim and the Doctor. You know there's like this like like a a parbroil of animosity between the two of them. You you can tell. I think that's the the episode title, Parbroil of Animosity. Yeah, like you you can tell. Because every time that Harry Kim walks into into sickbay, his ears 
turn a shade of purple? <laughs> like, what was that? That conversation between the doctor and Kess, where it's like, you know, you know, his heart rate increases, his pupils dilate, and his ears turn orange. Like, what? Well, Is that ears, a thing that happens? Yeah, my ears turn red sometimes, uh, usually when I'm tired. Okay. That is a thing that happens. But not orange. Well, orange and red are similar. It's like a reddish orange. Yeah. It's like blood okay. rushes to your ears for insert reason here. For me, it happens a lot when I'm tired for some reason. It's like the color choice is what was confusing to me. Yeah, all right. Yeah, that whole thing, that whole exchange seemed weird. And the fact that, like, the doctors, like, seems to think that Kesh should be happy that they're fighting over her. Yeah. But... Coming back to the doctor, and him being a doctor, not a voyeur. I am a doctor, not a voyeur. Yes. I didn't really care how Janeway, care for how Janeway handled that. She told him to stop watching, but she didn't say, oh, well, we'll start sending you reports or updates on what's happening here. He gave them useful information, which he only would have had if he was being a voyeur or if they were sending him status reports. He complained they're not sending him status reports... So he has to do this. She told him to stop doing this, but didn't say, "Oh, and we'll send you status reports." No, I, 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 I didn't. Um, I didn't pick up on that at the time. But you're right. Janeway's relationship with the doctor has always been has has been odd. Uh-huh. You, know, on the one hand, she tells him, "Like, well, how about we give you autonomy over turning your program on and off?" But on the other hand, she still kind of has in the back of your in the back of her head that it's just a program mm. and not a member of the crew. Yeah. Um, my thinking on the, I'm a doctor, not a voyeur comment was, do you think that was a programming feature? Do you think that like at Jupiter station when they were programming, like the be- like, you know, like the end all be all of wonder doctors that they were like, hold on a second. Who's one of the most famous doctors in Starfleet? I'd like to think so. Yeah, like, what was that thing that like we would like would notice in his reports from time to time? Let's program. Let, let, let's let, let's program the EMH to throw that out like way more often than the original ever did. And he does. The, yes, the EMH says, "I'm a doctor, not an X," more than any other character on Star Trek. Well, I would certainly hope that he said it more often than say like any other captain. Can you just imagine like Cisco being there like? On DS9, being all, ladies and gentlemen, I'm a doctor, not a prophet. A doctor, that would just be weird. I could hear it in, like, Cisco's inflection, though. That would be weird. Yeah, and then, like, everyone would, like, look at him weird. And, like, weird for Cisco, even. And Cisco <laughs> yeah. could get weird sometimes. Because I'm pretty, like, I would not have put it past him to say something like, I'm a Starfleet captain, not a prophet. Yeah. Well, he never was, he wasn't a prophet. He was an emissary for the prophets. Eh, whatever. <laughs> just saying. Profit, it's there in the title. But yeah, I it just that seemed we're we're still not we still have not yet reached the point where the doctor is considered a a full you know citizen and member of the crew. Right. Speaking of the captain, uh huh. Her hair's different. It is interestingly. This hair is very similar to what it will be later like for the last half of the show but they flirt with this design in this episode and then it'll go away for a while yeah i'll have to see if it sticks around to at least the next episode mm. also speaking of the captain were we 
Yeah. I really like, after the food fight, when mm-hmm. Paris and Neelix come report to her covered in, this, in uh, Aldarian hair pasta, uh, and she says, am I sensing a personal problem here? And they, they say yes, and she's just, solve it. Yeah, no, I made that note, too. I'll drop that clip in. Yeah, that was great. That was oh yeah peak Janeway right there. There was a lot of really solid Janeway in this episode, but one thing that really threw me was they were talking... I can't remember exactly what they were discussing. I think it was... Yeah, I can't remember when it was. I think it was like before the shuttle left. But she was like, okay, okay, cool, cool, cool. I'll be in my ready room. Like, why are you leaving the bridge right now? Like, what are you doing? Why are you going to be in your ready room? What are you getting ready for? Hmm. Yeah, who knows? Like, it... It, it just seemed odd in light of everything else that had, like, had just happened on the bridge. I mean, I suppose that it was, I guess, sort of like a semi-sign of confidence to the bridge crew that it's like, you guys can handle this, I'll be in my ready room. But, like, what she, I don't know, I guess you always got, like, pads to look at and reports to read. Um, yeah. Certainly possible. But, yeah, it was a little weird that she would just head over there. I don't know. Speaking of pads, mm-hmm. although I don't think we ever really saw any on this episode, when Paris and Kim go to the mess hall, mm-hmm. and then Kim has to promptly leave, you can tell this is a show written before personal cell phones, and especially personal smartphones, were a thing that everyone had at least one of. Right, because he would have just, it would just... Yeah. Be- beeped his, yeah. Yeah, he would just, like, pulled his pad out and been like, I'm just gonna surf the Voyager net. Mm-hmm. Or, or you know, like read a book or something like that. Like that, that, that solves my setting alone dilemma. And Janeway would have sent a message to his personal pad instead of using the ship's intercom. Yes, but she would have fallen back on the intercom if he had not looked at his pad. That's true. So the intercom still could have, come, and he wasn't looking at his pad because he was busy fighting Neelix. Mm, okay. Yeah. So we still would have gotten that scene. Okay. Yeah. Don't worry. Speaking of technology and pads and such. Shouldn't 24th century, 24th century Starfleet issue flashlights have, like, almost infinite power? I was thinking that, too, when they made that comment. We better conserve the power on the, le- on the whatever they called them. Beacons, I believe they called them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We better conserve power on the beacons. Why? Yeah, we talked about this already. They're called PIMS beacons for... Yeah, because it was named after the like the, yeah. the props, like the yeah. prop guy that put them together, yeah? He threw them together with parts from a 7-Eleven, yes. Right. Uh, and I feel like this must be a, this was a 90s thing, because the idea of LED flashlights wasn't a thing yet. And the idea of flashlights that don't use a lot of power, I guess, didn't occur to them. Yeah, I mean, just with with modern batter, battery technology and low-power LEDs, yeah, they, they would never have to worry terribly much about... I wouldn't think so, no. I mean, and you also have to think, has it ever come up that anyone has ever said, oh, no, my tricorder is dying? It's probably come up once or twice. Or, like, or my phaser's power is is out or anything like that. Like, yeah, I'm sure it's come up, like, once or twice in, like, a... They're in Star Trek Four. Chekhov's phaser doesn't work when he tries to stun the Secret Service, the, the, the military intelligence people that catch him on the aircraft carrier. Well, I thought that that was a combination of A, that it was a Klingon phaser, and B, with the radiation, and, like, C, I don't know, reasons. Well, he does say it must be the radiation. 
Uh, yeah. So, like, I'm not willing to put that into, like, the solid column of the batteries are flat. Okay. That's the only instance I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, right. So it's not like... I mean, they talk about, like, the ship, like, power... You know, that they talk about power on the ship. So, like, you know, so the concept of, like, like, the ship has a finite amount of power, although it's, like, a massive, like, amount of power. But the fact that like, they never talk about, like, phaser batteries or tricorder batteries or anything like that. It's like, why not just say... And we like, come back to those replicator rations, that it shouldn't be a finite... It should be a more or less infinite amount of power. The matter-antimatter reaction, pretty much anything should be a drop in the bucket for the warp core. Hey, who knows how much energy it takes to make a kumquat? Mm. All right. Well, actually, I'm sure that can be calculated. Yeah, probably. <laughs> So speaking of matter-antimatter reactions and yeah. replicators and holodecks, we actually get a call out for Technobabble. Yes, we do. In this episode, how amazing was that? It was super amazing. It's one of two times it ever happens in Star Trek. The other time was in Q-List on DS9. That's a good name. I like that. It's the one where Cisco punches Q in the jaw and Q never comes back. Respect. He says, you hit me. Picard never hit me. And Cisco's just like, I'm not Picard. Yeah. It worked. Yeah. He went off and pestered Janeway instead. Maybe she should have tried that. Yeah. Shortly after the Technobabble comment is when they hit, you know, their vector exhaust is not working, and so they lose maneuverability, and then they crash into the planet. Mm -hmm. While they're crashing, Neelix's hair is not flying around nearly enough. (laughs) I mean, I I get that they're just shaking the camera, and the actors are sort of, like, shuffling around a little bit. Like, on top of that. But Neelix's hair is not n- moving nearly enough. Like, he should have tried harder. I would agree with that, yes. But, eh, whatever. But, speaking of Neelix, we do get, like, a good shot of his boots when he was, like, climbing out from being pinned in the windshield because they don't have seatbelts. Mm-hmm. His boots are kind of cool. I like his boots. Were they made for walking? I mean, I hope so. They're going to be walking a lot on Planet Hell. Mm, that's just what they'll do. Oh, yeah, those are, um, there's a name for that style of boot that I'm blanking on. Yeah, I'm not sure what it is. I own a pair of boots of that style, actually. Cool. Not whatever brown they are in Neelix. Yeah, they're like a brown or an oxblood. I can't quite tell. Yeah, it's hard to see in the dark. But, yeah, anyway, they're boots. Yeah, they are boots. Speaking of boots, Mm -hmm. when they're in the cave... And they're detecting the faint life signs, and they go and they're wandering through, and they find like a boot print, uh-huh. and the boot print like really made me think of the like the footprints that are on the moon now. Mm. Like it looked like a lot like a like sixties astronaut boot, in my opinion. Maybe it was. Yeah, maybe. Which leads us neatly to them finding the hatchling. Bingo! Dino DNA. I had mentioned to Steve that there would be a later episode. <laughs> yes, an, an actual bingo dino DNA episode. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, that was my thought. Is <laughs> because it was a baby dinosaur. Yeah. Good puppet work. It was, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was really, really solid. So, why is Neelix the godmother? What exactly had he done? He, like, cuddled it. So what? It's a yeah. Hatchling baby Fathers thing. Fathers cuddle like, babies, too. Yeah. Babies like, like cuddling. Ugh, Paris. 
and they just they realize that the baby needs those trigemic vapors, which yes, that's weird to me. So they go into this cave, they seal off the cave because there aren't trigemic vapors, and they want to keep them out. Even with the cave open, there still wouldn't have been many trigemic vapors in the cave. Yeah, maybe there would have been like enough. Maybe. I was thinking about this as well because if they had sealed off the cave and there were the same amount of vapors inside as outside that it didn't do them any good to seal it off. Right. And the and the baby would have had plenty to go on for a while. It's a small baby. Uh, yeah, so I I've been like working through this myself when I was watching this like, hold on a second. Wait. How does this None of this makes any sense. Yeah. But, I mean, this was after I was spent, like, way too long, like, puzzling over why Starfleet issued communion wafers as rations. I was wondering that myself. Yeah. I did appreciate Paris and Neelix finally clearing the air. Yes. Between the two of them. I would like to stop hating Neelix. Yeah, I I did appreciate that as well. Uh, and And I did like that Paris basically said, you know, I wouldn't, I would never try to, you know, get myself in between you. At the same time, and it feels a lot like they're not giving Kess any agency in the thing at all. I agree with what you're saying, because I touch on the exact same thing, where how Tom said it, it came across like... And he also, like, said, like, largely that, like, if you weren't there, I'd be knocking on our door, which, I mean, is not necessarily, like, a bad thing to say. No. Like, like that in and of itself is not a bad thing to say. It's like, if if someone you're interested in has a partner already, then obviously, like, don't be a jerkwad and, like, try to, like, shoehorn in on that unless perhaps you think their partner is a gaslighting, manipulative, psychologically abusive person. Huh. I see what you did there. So I, I I can understand that perspective, but you know you're right. Like when he was saying it, that it was like solely based on his respect. Like all he would have had to say, like was just add like two or three more words to it, which is like I respect you and your like uh, I respect your and Kess's relationship. Yes. Like, that's all he would have to say. Like, make it clear that it wasn't just about his respect for Neelix and that individual, even though, like, I get that that's who he was talking to, but he has to recognize that there's two people in this partnership, Mm -hmm. and, like, both of them deserve his respect to not, like, try and shoehorn his way in there to, like, be like, hey, Kess, how you doing? Yeah, exactly. I mean, counterpoint to that... um, after like afterwards when Neelix was saying um I don't choose Kess's friends for her yes. it's like good job Neelix that was yes good job Neelix you are that is the attitude you should have I think you might just be turning a corner and I liked uh I did like the way he said I choose I only choose mine and then didn't even like continue on the thought he's just like that was his like way of saying that Paris is his friend without saying it and I liked that uh, yeah, like I said, I mean, I I'm I I will be more than happy to stop hating Neelix because I remember not hating him. Yeah, and I don't really like watching shows where I actively hate one of the characters. 
Uh, I especially dislike I especially dislike watching shows where I actively hate all of the characters. Especially in this instance, I mean, like, because obviously, if it's a villain who's you're supposed to hate and they play it very well, you really do hate him. That's good. That's a good thing. You want to see that, but you shouldn't have. You don't want to see that from your protagonist that you are very much not liking one of the main good quote unquote good guys on the show. Right. Yeah. I mean, Joffrey. Right. Exactly. Or Cersei. Mm. Or if we go to, if we go on a Star Trek bent, uh, Kai Wynn or Gal Dukat. Yeah. No, those those are good ones. I guess we don't really ever have like. I guess TNG didn't really have like a long running like recurring antagonist. Not unless you count Q. I don't count Q. Like that was also the first thing that came to my mind because he is like recurring. Oh, uh, well, there was Lore. Okay. And uh, Sela. Who was Sela? Uh, alternate time, alternate past Tasha Yar's. Romulan daughter. Oh, okay. How recurring were Lore and Sela? Lore was in three episodes. Okay, so one episode every two seasons. Yeah, Sela was in, I think, also three. Right, those don't count. Okay. I, 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 I mean, like Gal Dukat. Oh, yeah. Who's in multiple episodes a season. Right, yeah. Yeah, like, exactly. And we don't have anything like that in in Voyager. No, and we don't have a, we don't have a recurring. Uh, we kind of did on Enterprise for a while with uh, yeah, Silic, the Sulaban. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was I and, was gonna call that out. And the Zindi, obviously. Sure. But yeah, not not to the same level as DS Nine. And DS Nine, we had the interesting thing with Gold Dukat, where for a while there, you think he's gonna become a good guy and redeem himself, and then he just. Yeah, it totally doesn't. He he, go, he goes like, oh man, he like he, he turns his evil to eleven. It's amazing. Oh, yes, he does. <laughs> Marco Lima was amazing in that role. Oh yeah, no, I love Gal Dukat like as a villain in that show. Like it's just <sighs> DS Nine did so many things so well. Mm-hmm. Like it was really really great. It was before its time too. I think DS Nine of all the Star Treks would have benefited so well from prestige tv because it was halfway there already oh yeah i think that you know i'm i'm more or less done talking about parturition at this point like my final note is and now they're all friends (laughs) yeah i am pretty much done as well i did want to i did uh highlight uh when when uh neelix calls paris a subclass genus because i thought that was kind of funny what like that's a weird insult. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not as bad as a Kazon puss hog, I guess. But <laughs> nothing's as bad as a Kazon puss hog. <laughs> well, I think with that, I'm all out of notes. How about you? Yeah, I think I've covered more or less everything. Yeah, yeah. They're all friends now. Yay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Next week we'll be talking about. Uh, hold on. I... I had something in my eye there. We're going to be talking about uh, persistence of vision. Mm. Well, it'll still be there when you look again. Yeah. Apparently it's just proteins breaking down inside your eye. That's what those floater things are. Yeah. Or, you know, parasites. Gross. No, if you have worms, they can come to your eye. But, you know, that said about the worms, thanks for listening (laughs) this week. 
If you enjoyed this, you can also check out our other podcast, Stargate Weekly. You can find a review of both of those on our on your podcast player of choice, and you can also reach us at our email address, deltaflyerpod at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Gamicus. You can find me on Twitter at Tyrannicus. And you can follow us on Twitter at Delta Flyer Pod. And that's our show. Yeah. But I think that now would be a good time to talk about something Star Trek related, which is the um the like the D, like the DS9 restoration project. Oh, the DS DS9 documentary, uh, what we left behind. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. Um, did you see like the sample? Yeah. Images. Oh man. Uh huh. Well, I saw oh, a, a video clip at Vegas also. Oh, look at this guy. <laughs> Because they had a panel but, about the documentary. Yeah, uh, but, but like, to, like just seeing the, like the side by sides. Yeah, the one, uh, the one of Garrick at Quark's bar in particular, I think, looks incredible in HD. Yeah, I think that's like the main thing that's been like floating around. Yeah, there, I think there was another one. There were two, I believe, that came out. But yeah, the the documentary released a couple pictures because they're actually trying to do a a n- new wave of donations to help uh, fund putting more HD clips in the documentary. Yeah. And uh, I, I applaud their efforts, and I welcome anyone to donate. I've already given them a lot of money, so I'm going to pass <laughs> on that. Uh, sure. But it's so bittersweet to see these because they look great, and it's sad because I know that it is not in the cards for us to have it hd restoration of ds9 there just like isn't quite enough of a fan base specifically for ds9 well part of the problem is for the later seasons, starting in season four or five almost all the effects were cg and they don't have those files anymore so they'd be starting from scratch with that they'd have to completely redo all of the effects and that's and then we're talking the giant space battles of the Dominion War. They had to completely redo those from scratch. Yeah, but counterpoint, it's 23 years later, mm-hmm. and my cell phone has more computing power than whatever it is they use to make those effects in the first place. Oh, yeah, but... So, so remaking the effects would still computationally... It would still cost a ton of money. You're right. But, like, computationally... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It can be done. It's absolutely possible. The other problem is uh, when... So CBS made a lot of money when they converted TOS to Blu-ray, to HD, and they they remastered and sold the Blu-rays, and they made so much money that they're like, oh, we're going to do this with TNG. Right. So they did it with TNG, and they did not make a lot of money. Is there, like, information as to why? Well, there's a lot of speculation, and I think the big thing is, between the time period that they made TOS on Blu-ray and they made TNG on Blu-ray, sales of physical media plummeted. Yeah, that's tricky. Like They eventually did make a profit on remastered TNG, but where they made the profit was by selling it to Netflix and Amazon and other streamers, but that took a long time for them to recoup that money, and when you come down to it, DS9, and this also applies to Voyager, DS9 Mm -hmm. and Voyager were never as popular as TNG. They, at this point, Blu-rays will sell even less of those than they would of TNG. Like, by a wide margin. Oh, yeah. 
and it takes a very long time to recoup the profits just through selling streaming rights. Now, the counterpoint to that is we're rapidly approaching the p- a time when people are not going to want to stream anything in standard definition. Okay, so here's my point on that. Hmm? There's a lot of things that people who are tech nerds and enthusiasts and aficionados who think, like, well, I would never tolerate a computer without an SSD. I would never tolerate a screen that had a, a res lower than whatever. Like, I would never tolerate a mouse that wasn't fantastic. Like, like all kinds of, like, little things that people who, like, actually care actually care about yeah but then you have to realize that like you're like in like the three percent of the people who actually care and 97 percent of the people are like eh, whatever like it's streaming yeah that's also true i mean there's like a real question of like how many people would actually care about sd versus hd so long as they can just fire up netflix and get it like they might be like because all they have to, like, uh, I mean, it, it's not like a hard mental leap to just be like, oh, this is a 20-year-old show. Yeah, so what I'm, so, yeah, but because of that, we are unlikely to ever see DS9 remastered on, in HD, and the same is true for Voyager. Uh, my minor hope for this, uh, I am very much looking forward to seeing clip HD HD footage in the DS9 documentary. I am a backer and I will be getting a copy of that as soon as it comes out. Actually, I think I get access to it to it for streaming before it actually comes out. But anyway, uh we're not we're probably not going to get HD DS9. We're probably not going to get HD Voyager. My only hope for them is CBS All Access. Mhm. If the new Star Trek shows that CBS is in development do extremely well on CBS All Access, I'm hoping that maybe they will see the potential for doing a HD restoration and making it a CBS All Access exclusive. And that's something that can be lived with. Yeah. Yeah. Because if CBS is making new Star Trek and putting it on All Access, I will continue to have CBS All Access. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't even it wouldn't be a problem for me because I would already have it anyway. But I would definitely and if Voyager and DS9 are there on HD, I will definitely have CBS All Access. And that's the one thing that I think might happen at some point is it might come there and be an exclusive to that service. Yeah, but I'm just not sure if that would be enough of a selling point. I don't think there's anything more we can say about the remastering project at this time. Yeah, probably not. So, oh well. <laughs>